Hi, I'm Josh. I'm Ken. And I'm TJ. And this is Serious Film People, the podcast where we discuss films nominated for Best Picture. This is our fourth entry in our 1985 series, and today we will be discussing John Huston's Pritzi's Honor, which I Prizzy? thought... I thought it was Pritzy? yeah yeah I was I was going Prizzy in my head but in there a oh, lot of the too. time they Pritzy so uh, every time today that I say that last name I'll be going Pritzy so Pritzy's honor um, <laughs> <laughs> had you guys seen this film before today I had seen uh, parts of this film before I had never actually sat down from beginning to end and watched it um, and I'll be honest it has been a long time since I'd seen any of it um, and my strongest memory was uh, William Hickey who we'll ah. uh, discuss no doubt soon <laughs> that we shall josh what about you have he, you seen he it pl- he plays the don right correct he, don don. he does yes uh before last night i had not seen a single frame of this movie uh i had seen the the, the poster which is jack nicholson and kathleen turner laughing and that's that's all i'd seen a poster, yeah, a poster looks, that does not reflect no. this film at all <laughs> it looks like a road film also <laughs> he's smoking a cigarette and doesn't smoke a cigarette in the whole movie Honestly, like the marketing, eh, marketing's the wrong word because I was not around in 1985 to see the marketing, but like the Only way Ken this... was, Ken was 40. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I believe he was also 40 in 1975 when That's we right. talked about the 1975 yep. movies. So he was, he was 40 for a long time. Um, uh, not the marketing, but like the, I guess this movie's online presence and or like how it's like sold and talked about now, I think made me like the movie less than I might have otherwise, because Ooh. I think it's kind of selling something that the movie isn't mm. quite. You know, um, I guess I guess we can talk about this in more detail. But uh, on the Wikipedia page, the 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 first sentence of the Wiki, Wikipedia page is uh, "Pritzi's Honor" is a 1985 American black comedy crime film directed by John Huston, starring Jack Nicholson, Kathleen Turner, as two highly skilled mob, assa- mob assassins who, after falling in love, are hired to kill each other. Which kind of implies that's like the premise of the movie. That's the last like five minutes of the movie or the last 10 minutes of the movie this is not mr and mrs smith which which it's is not, kind of i was how expecting mr and mrs smith yeah, for yeah sure. exactly yeah it's, it's sold as the yeah um and it's not really that and so i've talked a lot on this podcast before if i have the wrong expectations i'm going to be expecting certain things to happen in certain order to certain time stamp basically i'm a big structure guy and like mm-hmm. that, this isn't that movie so um interesting yeah interesting interesting uh reputation this movie has yeah, so it's not Mr. and Mrs. Smith, but what it is, is a film nominated for eight Oscars that year in 1985. Eight Oscars. It was nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Actor for Jack Nicholson, Best Supporting Actor for William Hickey, Best Supporting Actress for Angelica Houston, and then Best Costume Design and Best Film Editing. Uh, one win out of those eight. Do we know what that win was? That would be Best Angelica. supporting actress. Yes, Angelica Houston, making John Houston the first director to do what, Josh? Appear twice on this podcast. <laughs> uh, I think that's correct. Yeah, yes. no, We should uh, probably add that to his Wikipedia page as important we should. posthumous and, accomplishments. And Nicholson's, and Nicholson's the first actor to appear twice as the lead of a movie on this podcast. But no, uh, John, uh, John Houston is the first director, and only director, I believe, to this day, to direct two family members, two acting Oscars. That's right. Being his father for Treasure of Sierra Madre, which we've covered on this podcast, and absolutely rules, and his daughter, Angelica Houston, in Pritzi's honor. It's, Pritzi's honor. It's, it's particularly noteworthy he did it 37 years apart. I mean... Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, he's yes. 79 when he makes this film, so he actually yes. still has the record for being the oldest person nominated in the Best Director category. Really? Okay. Which is shocking to believe because when Clint Eastwood won in 04, I could swear he was like 91 back then. <laughs> but How old was Marty when he made The Irishman? 77? Then? Uh, no, no, no. I think Much, he's only just now about eighty-ish, right? So yeah, so I guess seventy-six years yeah. ago at this point. Yeah, so three years uh, ago. Um, this is well, this is John Huston's penultimate film, but um, mm-hmm. I didn't. He he died before the end, uh, before the release of The Dead, his last film. Mm-hmm. If this I, is the last movie to come out within right. his lifetime. That's something mm-hmm. that I read. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And that apparently he had emphysema on set and was like taking oxygen between takes. So he was he was not doing too well at the time. The film also it won best screenplay at the BAFTAs and was nominated for supporting actress. That was it at the BAFTAs and at the Glo- uh, Golden Globes. It won best picture musical or comedy, won best director, best actor, and actress musical or comedy, and then it was nominated for screenplay and supporting actress. So lots was, of were the drama categories won by Out of Africa at the Globes. Uh, I don't think across the board. I think there was some. Uh, love for the color purple, but I don't have it pulled up in front of me right now. Okay, we can talk about it in the 85 episode, the recap episode. Yeah. Forthcoming, yeah. So, Pritzi's Honor, as we said, is directed by John Huston, written by Richard Condon and Janet Roach. Condon adapts his own novel named Pritzi's Honor. He wrote four Pritzi novels. This is the only one that was made into a film. And I didn't know this. Richard Condon also wrote the novel for The Manchurian Candidate. That's correct. Yeah. <laughs> I was just about to say, this is yeah. a strange, there's, there's a strange pairing of books uh, for Richard Condon here. The fact that he's got, he's most famous for The Manchurian Candidate and Pitsy's Honor is just, we'll get into it. But this movie is, is, is very, very far removed from Manchurian Candidate. Yeah, it's quite different in terms of topic and tone, I think. So, um, He's, he's sort of an interesting bibliography he has going on there. The film stars Jack Nicholson as Charlie Partana, Kathleen Turner as Irene Walker. Quick thing on Kathleen Turner that this is going to humiliate me in front of our millions of listeners. In my head, I like forgot that she wasn't Lauren Bacall. <laughs> so I'm watching this and I'm like, wow, Kathleen Turner is beautiful. She looks so great in this movie, especially because like just five years later, she's in misery and she's looking kind of old in misery. No, that would be Lauren Bacall that's yes. looking kind of old in misery. Um, so that, that was embarrassing. Uh, Robert Loja is in it. Josh. Robert Loja. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, as in Robert Loja. <laughs> oh, as in, oh my God, it's Robert Loja. <laughs> Didn't even need prompted. It's funny to me that, like, how different generations identify him. Because I'm sure I recognize him mostly as the guy from Big. Yes. Tom Hanks' mm-hmm. boss who dances on the piano with him in Big, which is one of the most iconic movie scenes in any movie I've ever seen in my life. Uh, he's also one of the generals in Independence Day for me yep. because that's the, the age <laughs> yeah. that I am. But I think anyone younger than us, their number one point of reference for Robert Loja might be a Family Guy cutaway joke. <laughs> In their defense, one of their best cutaway jokes. But... <laughs> Space. Uh, oh, yeah. Boy, everybody loves Robin. <laughs> and he uh, is also this year releases Jagged Edge, hmm. which he's nominated for best supporting right. actor that year. That's worth a look. It's a crime. It's a. It's actually a crime thriller uh, or legal related thriller, but um, it's got Jeff Bridges and, and Glenn Close. A also. Hmm. Uh, different movie than Fritzy's honor <laughs> yeah uh with the dude and cruella de vil 
Nice. And Robert Loja. <laughs> Robert Loja. Tim. Who, Tim. Tim. It's Robert uh, Loja. Tim, look over there. It's Robert Loja. <laughs> uh, so he, uh, also a quick thing about Robert Loja. He's amazing in Lost Highway, if you haven't seen Lost Highway. Mm. And he plays the kind of, the, the, the role that's akin to the Dennis Hopper role in Blue Velvet. And I read David Lynch's book, Room to Dream. And Robert Loja apparently was like really wanted the Frank Booth role, like really, mm. really, really wanted it and didn't get it, was super pissed and like cursed Lynch out. And then Lynch basically told him like, I'm going to get you in a different movie with a really similar role, Bob. And and he does that. And Loja's great in it. And he's very funny. Um, we also have John Randolph as Pop Partana and William Hickey as Don Corrado Prizzi. Which was shocking to me, an early meeting of Clark Griswold's dad and Uncle yep. Lewis yep. four years before Christmas Vacation. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And and, uh, and this film does offer up an opportunity where Jack Nicholson's character, Charlie, early on as a, as a teenager, right, he does receive the blessing! <laughs> <laughs> oh. so, Wait, real quick, real quick. I was aghast when I learned how old William Hickey is in this movie. He's yeah, 58. Old, yeah, he's, he's not 58. <laughs> yeah, you know who else is 58? He looks like he's on Keanu death's door. Reeves. Keanu Reeves is John Wicking people to death, and William Hickey is basically playing how Prince, what, Edward looked right before he died? Like, they are weakened at burning this guy all throughout the movie. The makeup actually is really good. <laughs> I don't know if it's the makeup. First of all, his teeth are brown. They're not yellow. They are brown. His teeth are brown. And <laughs> he just spit out his coffee. I, that was a real spit take. <laughs> spit take uh, on the podcast. Um, so he is, let's see. William Hickey plays Don Corrado Pritzi. Uh, his son, Robert Loja, is, I believe, three years younger than him. Yes. And his other son, um, uh, Eduardo Pritzi. I'm sorry. Robert Loja plays Eduardo, <laughs> and his other son is Dominic, played by Lee Richardson, who is older yes. than oh, William wow. Hickey. So yes. he's yeah. younger than his one son and only three years older than his other son. And he is somehow 58 years old. <laughs> even though he looks nine, he could he could he doesn't look a day under 98. <laughs> he effectively he effectively pulls off the like the the very weak. Oh, yeah. Debilitated sure. body. Rounding out the cast, Lee Richardson plays Dominic. Angelica Houston is May Rose Pritzi, uh, which was apparently a very highly coveted role. And she got it and was paid basically SAG minimum. And when they asked the studio for more, and she says in her memoirs that they basically were like, you're the director's daughter yeah. and you're the star's girlfriend. Like, no. Uh, because at the time she was dating Jack Nicholson. I think she was mm -hmm. 34. He was like 48. Is that problematic? CCH Pounder and Lawrence Tierney round out the cast. Lawrence Tierney, who you might know from Reservoir Dogs. That's right. About, what, seven years before he plays Joe? Yeah, Reservoir I think Dogs? so. I think so. God damn it, stop pointing that gun at my dad! That's not him. That's his son. But oh. <laughs> he's the he is the dad in that he sentence. The, the titular father. Uh, Pritzi's honor was made on a $16 million budget and grossed a modest $26.6 million at the box office. It's also notable for being the screen debut of Stanley Tucci. 
I did not see him. I was just neither. I was just about about to say, I will give either of you a dollar. Just (laughs) if you can tell me where you found him. I even Google imaged Stanley Tucci in Pritzi's honor. No, we got a lot of stuff about his his Italy show where he eats food, which is fantastic. I'm not actually sure he's in this movie. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, he's credited as soldier. I watched this on April Fools, so I I thought there was a chance the internet was, was. screwing with me oh yeah that's possible that's possible the the film was highly highly praised by pauline kale roger ebert and gene siskel pauline kale said it was the best film of the 1985 summer and wrote quote this john houston picture has a ripe and daring comic tone it revels voluptuously in the murderous finagling of the members of a brooklyn mafia family and rejoices in their scams it's like the godfather acted out by the monsters that's a fantastic description. By the way. <laughs> yeah. Um, bringing up The Godfather, we have to get back to The Godfather later. I have more from Pauline Kael. If you yeah. want to read more of her review or if you think you covered most of it No, there. I'd like to hear more. It's always, Pauline's always welcome on the show. Let's see. She says, Houston, referring to John Houston now, John Houston's made a character comedy out of Condon's prankish satire of American corruption. He has been so confident and free that he has included movie-making jokes like the use of obvious stock shots of planes moving back and forth across the country to represent Charlie and Irene carrying on their coast-to-coast romance. The characters come equipped with certain eccentricities of the environment, such as the habit, apparently developed among people who make inordinate, inordinate amounts of money, of saying a dollar when they mean a thousand dollars. When they refer to seven hundred and twenty dollars, they're actually talking about heavy cash. Well, a, a point about that, I noticed that later in the film when Mayrose is asking for all of her money back, and it's at that point $900,000. She's saying $900. And mm-hmm. I had the yeah. subtitles on. Yeah. And yep. the subtitles exactly right. showed 900000 I'm like, did I hear that right? Yeah. Um, Pauline Kale really liked Nicholson's performance. Mm-hmm. Um, she compared him to Jackie Gleason in The Honeymooners. And she said, uh, it's it's a virtuoso set of variations on your basic double take and traditional slow burns. Hmm. Um, she compared him to Art Carney. Um <laughs> And said that Nicholson's Charlie plugs the honeymooners' kind of ordinariness into this mafia world. And she also praised Angelica Houston, saying she has more in her face than anyone else has. She has irony in the strangeness of what's mm. hidden. She's like a bomb ticking away in the background of the movie. Which I think is an apt observation on Angelica Houston and her role in the story. And I also think it's interesting that, like, Pauline Kao loved this and really liked what Jack Nicholson was doing. Because... Mm-hmm. I didn't love this, and I did not like what Jack Nicholson was doing. Oh. And I think that might be like, I think that based on like the positive reviews I've read and the not so positive reviews I've read, I think that like if you respond to the tone, mm-hmm. you'll like the movie. And I didn't really get the tone. This okay. movie is leaning into what it's doing, one hundred percent. They are all in. Everybody in this film is is doing what they're doing with intent. They're playing it straight, but it is a a weird, weird tone to yeah, try so- and capture. That's that's one of the first things I want to talk about. I do want to talk about Nicholson, but before we get into the nitty gritty of it, uh, I want to give the uh, sort of log line, the storyline, yeah, yeah, yeah. and I would like to. Well, I'll ask the question afterward. So, Charlie Partana is a hitman who works for the Brizzis, one of the richest crime syndicate families in the country. Unbeknownst to Charlie, the Brizzis just hired Irene Walker, a freelance killer, to eliminate someone who double crossed them. When Irene and Charlie fall in love, their jobs become complicated. Their jobs become impossible when each is given a contract that neither can go through with. The tagline... Which, again... <laughs> it's, is that wait, what wait, movie for, is? wait for the tagline. Wait for the <laughs> Hired killers by day, devoted lovers by night, until they found their next assignment, 
was each other. So when you look at that, you Again, think that's going to be like that? 30 yeah. minutes into the movie, and it's it's not. Um, I don't often ask this question because I'm usually more interested in the kind of analysis interpretation than the just reader response. But because of how strange I think this movie is, I do want to actually start with this. What do you guys think of this movie? <laughs> <laughs> Kenny, did you did I'm, you like Pritzi's Honor? I'm going back and forth on this movie since I saw it the other day. Um, my my gut instinct, my first, my initial reaction was, well, that was weird, and I'm <laughs> yeah, a little confused fair. why it's why we're watching this, and why it was nominated, what is going on, and for God's sakes, will someone tell Jack Nicholson that the accent is just cartoonish? Mm. Um, Let, hold on, just because you mentioned it, I don't think I've ever heard Jack Nicholson doing an accent except for kind of in The Departed, yep. where he kind of like does and doesn't do it. Occasionally, he kind of slips in and out. Have you guys ever heard Jack Nicholson do it in an accent? Um, no. Not off the top He's not really head. an accent kind of actor, is he? No. no. Also, this. Yes. It, yeah, that's... He, so it's, he, it's, it's not a visual medium. Yeah. Yeah, doing. I'm doing prop comedy right now. He, he has a very, like, puffed-out lip yes. the whole time. And I was like, what's going on there? I thought maybe there was some backstory where he got, like, punched in the face or whatnot. I think he's got that, like, Who from Whoville lip action going on because then he literally is like a mouth breather the whole movie. And supposedly John Huston's direction to him before, like, every take was, now remember, you're stupid. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's funny he mentions upper lip because both Roger Ebert in his three-and-a-half-star review and Pauline Kale in her rave review also mention... Uh, Jack Nicholson's upper lip. Uh, Roger Ebert says he uses a stiff upper lip like Bogart and sounds simple and, impl- and implacable. Implacable? Implacable. Uh-huh. Yeah. Implacable. Yeah. Implacable. I don't know if I get Humphrey Bogart from him. I didn't get Humphrey Bogart from him. No. Paul and Kale uh, compared him to Marlon Brando and The Godfather. She said that Nicholson's inflated upper lip compliments Brando's pushed out lower lip. Well, I'm I, like, really? I, I, well, I'll agree with that to the point that i think this movie is really playing in you've all seen the godfather and we're gonna kind of riff on what if this was more of a dark tragic comedy rather than the like greek dramatic tragedy that the godfather is they do both open with weddings yes. so i'm sure it is like trying to evoke the godfather in a lot of ways yes. princey's honor is first of all it's a sardonic sardonic comedy it's a dark dark comedy and it is kind of feeding into somewhat of a response to what we got with The Godfather and Godfather Part 2. Mm-hmm. There's been a lot of criticism over the years. You can There's a lot to be read. And we will no doubt dive deeper into it once we get to 1972, 1974 films. But there was a romanticization with The Godfather films among the public after they were released. Um Rightly or wrongly, we'll discuss whether we agree to that when we talk about those movies, but you get like The Killing of the Chinese Bookie, and you get movies like Pritzi's Honor, which are kind of pushing back on that. You get these mob or underworld figures who are not romanticized at all. They're not really people you're jealous of. They're not people you want to be around. These guys are dumb. They are dumb. These are really dumb people. And these people are, they're they're dumb, they're ruthless, and they don't seem to get get it most of the time. And for me, that was, I think, the most successful thing about the tone. In terms, I found parts of it very, very funny in their very ordinary, casual, blasé way that they would often react to some pretty horrific things that were going on. <laughs> and I have a couple things I want to point to specifically later. Josh? 
Well, I wanted to mention something because Ken kind of alluded to it. Uh, the top, real quick delve into Josh's populist corner that we'll return to later in the episode, but the top review on Letterboxd, the second sentence is about how this created a template that would permeate the gangster genre throughout the 90s with the likes of Analyze This and Get Shorty. Mm. Um, so it is like kind of taking a existing genre that was mostly serious up to this point and kind of like putting a comedic spin on it. And I guess it was maybe among the first to do that, even though as that review alluded, that kind of became more of a thing in the 90s that, you know. It makes me wonder, actually, just five years after this, it makes me wonder if this film influenced the creation of The Freshman, which is a film yeah. that directly parodies The Godfather by having Marlon Brando as the, the co-lead with Matthew Broderick playing basically a Don Corleone. And, and perhaps to speak to the relevance of this type of story in the cultural imagination, also five years later, you have Godfather Part 3 and Goodfellas. Mm. Ken, did you like this? <laughs> I, I Like I said, I'm going back and forth. There are aspects of this I like. I'm just not sure that it uh, achieves what it may be trying to do, which is both parody or pushback on the, like I said, the the perceived impact of the godfather movies on people's perception and views of uh, american mafia also i think that this film is also is somewhat commenting on the 80s and capitalism mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. this movie is definitely about the idea of what what is honor right to the princes is it family or is it money yeah and there's a really wonderful line it's in my notes but i don't know that i can call it up right now but basically is uh they would let, rather their children be killed than have to have to lose any amount the line, of money. It's it's Marxy's line, right? The the they quote Marxy as saying yeah, that yeah. you got to be careful. Those Sicilians, they would rather eat their children than there you go than lose any money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's definitely a lot in this film that's critical of an American version of self-made capitalism and what that looks like. In a way that The Godfather also does, but this, I think, lampoons it more. Right. O over to Josh. What Did you like this movie? Kind of, I guess. <laughs> like <Okay>. a little. <laughs> yeah, um, it's, yeah, it's a tough question to answer. <laughs> not as much as I thought I would, I guess. Like, I think at the end of the last episode, I was saying that I didn't really particularly enjoy the first three movies in this 1985 series so far, and I was expecting to like the last two more. And as I was watching this, <laughs> a couple of thoughts I had. Number one... I'm not sure to make this. And number two, maybe I was too harsh to the color purple. <laughs> maybe oh. that was better than I thought oh. in hindsight, wow. <laughs> given his competition. Um, I read Pauline Kael's Rave, and I read Ebert's three and a half star uh, review. Not much to Ebert's review. Like, there's barely anything in there, honestly. And Pauline Kael's, uh, I, I wanted to know what she liked about it so much. And as I kind of already alluded, she likes the performances and she likes the tone. Mm -hmm. And... That's fair, and that's why I think that if you are on the movie's wavelength in terms of tone, you'll probably like the movie overall, and I kind of wasn't really on its wavelength in terms of tone, so I was less sure what to make of it, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, and there might be a number of factors to that, like I kind of already alluded, like maybe this is like the first one to do this like comedic take on a mob movie, and I've already seen a bunch of, or not a bunch, but I've seen a few, I've seen this done already, so um, the novelty's worn off. Number two, like I don't... <laughs> I wasn't really sure what to make of Jack Nicholson's performance. And, like, I, I could tell early on he's kind of going for, like, broad screwball. Um, at least that's kind of like, you, you know, one of the opening scenes is they're at a wedding and he sees Kathleen Turner at the wedding and is taken by her. In that and he lavender does like this, dress. 
in that lavender dress, and he does this like slow turn to look at her, and like the, what what he does with his eyes, it is very broadly comedic, or at least you know an attempt at broad comedy. And then like later on, about twenty minutes later, he's, he's on the phone with her. He's been trying to track her down for like uh, the whole day, and he finally gets her on the phone. He's like, "This is the woman from the wedding." And again, like his <laughs> eyes are kind of darting back and forth, and like yeah. a very broad like screwball comedy kind of expression so like i get what he's going for mm-hmm. um i'm just not, not sure i was ever really like on the same wavelength as, as his performance or mm-hmm. as the movie so um i kind of kept it at, at a distance okay. but I, it ultimately kind of came together for me a little bit um maybe once it finally got to the plot that was kind of promised to me with the log mm-hmm. line <laughs> which um again not to belabor this point but i was taking like notes of like the minute marker where certain things were happening mm-hmm. and like we can talk about that in a minute and it, it's structure, but I guess uh overall note. Um, the other thing I, I thought was uh, I was about halfway through it and I'm like, really Angelica Houston won an Oscar for this. Yes. So far she's been, she's been in like two scenes. Mm. She's had maybe six minutes of screen time total so far. And um, I guess to the movie's credit and to the credit of her performance, like it is revealed that she's kind of a string puller in the end, and right. it kind of does it does kind of come around and land the plane as far as her her character is concerned. Um, so I enjoyed that aspect, and I enjoyed her performance ultimately, even though it took me a minute. Um, yeah, but overall, though, I'm not sure uh, I was responding to the tone, and therefore I think that's kind of the whole movie is the tone. So sure, what do you think, TJ? Well, uh, let me ask real quick: Do you think if you rewatched it, knowing what the tone is and knowing that it's not? the Mr. and Mrs. Smith plot that it was promised, do you think you would have a different reaction? I mean, I think I would still have the note of this takes an awful lot of long time to get where it's going. Um, even without the promise of the Mr. and Mrs. Smith plot, like it's still like, this is ostensibly a movie about two hitmen. We don't learn Jack Nicholson is a hitman till minute 35. Mm-hmm. We don't learn his profession until minute 35. Mm-hmm. If you're, if you're making a movie about hitmen, Give me the hitman earlier, I guess is my note. Okay. And that's um, a note you can kind of apply to other story aspects too. That's just yeah. like one example of a few. It's weird also because the way he's the way he's presented to us throughout the beginning of the film, uh, I'm not sure that I would I would have guessed that he's that's that's what he's known as, is a hitman. Because in the very beginning of the movie, everyone knows him by name, the cop knows him outside the wedding, the photographer the one photographer knows him by sight. He seems to be just a a major capo you know he he seems to be a very important member of the pritzi you know crime family which he is he's sitting at the table with 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 don carrado and eduardo and his dad is is don carrado's like number two his number his chief advisor but you don't get any you don't get the sense that charlie is exclusively the hitman he's the guy they go Mm -hmm. to to not to take people out by the way, are we to understand that the baby born in the opening scene yes. is Charlie? Yeah. yeah. The movie opens with a nursery. Yeah. Two guys like looking into a nursery. No, it's not two guys. It's yeah. William Hickey and John Randolph. Yeah, oh, I know. John Randolph in a terrible brown, brown like. And he's like, therapies. from here on, I'll be, his, uh, I'll be his father with you. I'll raise him with you. Uh, because I guess the mother dies in childbirth. Yep. Later, later, the father, John Randolph, says, uh, you know, oh, when you cook for me, it's like your mother's still with us. Which I thought was a really nice moment. But yeah, yeah and then we, we get a cut to uh, Charlie as a, like a young boy dressed this in a, a good bit. I liked this bit. Boy Scout uniform and his Christmas gift is like brass knuckles. <laughs> yeah. Oh. yeah, a Boy Scout getting brass knuckles for a Christmas gift is a good bit. I like that bit. Yeah. And then weirdly, it goes from those two things 
with that kind of jaunty score by Alex North into a very long and kind of lavish series of shots inside the church during the wedding with Ave Maria. And there's a lot of like slow. I panning. could not believe how long this went on for. <laughs> it goes I on. could not believe how long it went on for. Yeah. So at the beginning, it, it's quick. It's jaunty. It's funny. And then immediately it goes into like, oh, wait, this is kind of going. This is like a Coppola movie now. Like this is going into The Godfather. And we also get strange dissolves to show us who the principal characters are. But with very little characterization given to them, they're kind of completely out of context, except that um, I, I refer to him as Uncle Lewis. Uh, he's the Don <laughs> guy. is like falling asleep during, yeah, his, during the, yeah. Um, yeah, so then that's when Charlie sees Irene in the rafters, in the balcony, and <laughs> she's in the rafters, she's perched <laughs> up there, um, and uh, bribes the photographers trying to figure out who she is. He then goes outside and bribes a cop to take him to the wedding reception for half a dozen veal steaks. At the wedding reception, we get back into comedy, where right off the top, they are like walking the Don out, and he's looking all like an embalmed corpse there. And they really give does. they give him this intro. He's fifty eight. I can't go back. He's fifty eight. That's insane. Uh, they give him they give him an intro, and are like, "We're gonna hear from him now." And he just kind of leans. Wait, and whispers, who gives the intro? Who gives the intro? Well, I think it's the other guy. Robert Loja. You know, Robert, Robert oh, Loja speaks for him. Robert Loja. And he can't even really speak into the microphone. He just kind of whispers something. And Robert Loja then, like, translates yeah. for him. Yeah. Um, which, I, I don't know, I thought that was pretty funny. But we get a lot of, within that scene, a lot of the dynamics of the characters and their conflict set up. Namely that May Rose is the black sheep of the family. As she puts it, she is the family scandal. And her dad tells her off for, quote, dressing like a whore, close quote. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so she's been estranged from the family. And we also learn that Charlie and she had a little bit of a fling a long time ago. It's the primary reason for her, her, her black sheep status in the family. Right, right. She uh, left Charlie for another man, which mm-hmm. was a no-no. Yeah. And she also is like an interior decorator for Charlie's apartment. Yes. Um, <laughs> so uh, he breaks a vase as an excuse to call her. Um, oh, that's why he calls. Yeah. Okay, yeah. But really, he's asking about who was the woman in the lavender dress. And it ends up being Irene that contacts him later that night. Yeah. So yeah. this is something I want to touch on because it. I get why they're doing it, but I kind of thought it a total waste of time. Like he's, we see him on the phone talking to the photographer. First of all, how stupid are you that you think the photographer is going to know everybody who was at the wedding, including the people who are up in the balcony section? Clearly not not important guests to the wedding. And so he follows up with the photographer. The photographer is like, "Yeah, I got the photos." No, I don't know who she is. And then he's contacting May Rose, and in order to contact May Rose, he decides to break the vase as a reason for it, even though he's calling her on the phone. It's like, oh, I broke the vase. Why do you have to break the vase? Just call her up. And then it leads to, it doesn't get him anywhere. He doesn't know who Irene is. (laughs) She calls him. The plot Mm -hmm. starts rolling because she she calls him. him. It's not really said, but we learn later that she is always many steps ahead of him and the rest of us. It's very clear that she is a competent hit woman as opposed to Charlie, who manages to get lucky a lot. Yeah. So I think I think now's a good time to talk about Kathleen Turner, because they do go on this lunch date 
he wears that awful jacket, <laughs> yellow jacket. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that first lunch date where they sit together and stare at each other. Every time they're on a lunch, they're just staring at each other. Is done in a, a very long take, a two shot. And we learn there where she mentions she was married, left her husband four years ago, she says. And Charlie is like, well, I could find him for you. And she says, let him stay lost. And at this point in the movie, I'm getting Mrs. Mulray vibes from Chinatown. Yeah. And part of what I think is so... My favorite performance in the movie is one that's not nominated, which is Kathleen Turner. I think she's wonderful in this. And part of why I think she's wonderful in this is... It took me a really, really long time to figure out where her allegiances were and when she's fronting and when she's playing him and when she's not and does she actually love him. And um, Josh comments on... It helps that this is four years after Body Heat, which mm-hmm. I think was her screen debut. I want to say, or like among her, at least her her coming that's her out first, party. More that's or her less. her first big performance. And in that movie, she plays a Spider Woman. You know, you just mm-hmm. alluded to Mrs. Mulray. We described Spider Women earlier in this 1985 series, but uh, she's playing the Barbara Stanwyck role mm-hmm. in um, uh, Double Indemnity. Uh, Double Indemnity, thank you. Which is, I mean, Body Heat's a remake of Double Indemnity, so she is right. playing the classic femme fatale. Where do her allegiances lie? Can't she be trusted? Who is she double-crossing? Who is she loyal to kind of things? Like, I kind of brought that baggage into this role, and I think Mm -hmm. that actually elevated her performance, to your point. Mm -hmm. Um, I agree. I think she's great in this. Yeah. Uh, Ken, thoughts on Kathleen Turner in this? I like. I mean, Kathleen Turner, I think, is doing her Kathleen Turner thing from the mid '80s. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a to Josh's point. It reminds me of Body Heat. It also reminds me um, of War of the Roses, which I think is a few years after this, and also kind of involves the you know the two leads, her and Michael Douglas. Um, their marriage is breaking apart, and they slowly but surely destroy their lives trying to outdo one another, and that's also a very dark comedy like this one. And so there's some of her performance that I see through both of those movies. And she does, she does this kind of thing very, very well. Mm-hmm. Um, I quite, I quite like her in this one in particular. Um, she is leaning into the over the topness of the, the kind of, I think the situations um, for example, there's that scene you're re- referencing where she and he are on their dinner date or they're out there. It's like an outdoor restaurant or whatever. Um, it's so over the top and melodramatic and it's intended to be. And she is 100% in on it. Like mm-hmm. Kathleen Turner is delivering exactly what you would expect. It's almost, they're almost like soap opera level performances, but it's intended that way. They're intended to be kind of uh, parodied performances. And from there, we also cut to um, the the uh the kind of the sex scene right where not not yet um that's what it's after that's after the second that's after the yeah that's after the the second second time yeah Yeah. where he that's when they pick their song right this will be our song the mexican the mexican yeah he says i can't sleep no one in my life has ever affected me the way you make me feel i love you and she's like i think i love you too or i think i'm in love with you and he's like no this is Part of what I think is really funny. Uh, if, when, when you're just in love, it's just a hormonal secretion. <laughs> and, and so his theory on love is very strange. But the whole time she's like leaning in closer and closer to him, kind of eating up all of the things that he's saying. And right after he says, this will be our song, that's when they go for a roll in the hay. And a uh, literal He roll. gets a kiss of the spider woman. Isn't um, this still their first date? 
Uh, yes, I believe so. Yeah. yeah, so he, for their first date, he flies across the country he from does. New York to California mm-hmm. in order to go on their first date, and then on their first date, they both confess their love for each other? Yes. I mean, yep. I get this is like a satire, but... Well, I think but, what this is doing thematically is we're supposed to look at that as like, that's stupid and ridiculous, mm-hmm. but then so are a lot of the ways in which people's connections and honor and what they owe one another, the way those are constructed. Early on, we get with the Don and him kind of doing like a blood pact with their right. fingers. And later in the movie, with the, with the in the conflict of what Charlie has to decide, they keep saying, you know, this is your family, we're your blood. And he's like, well, that's my wife. She's my family too. Yeah, but you've only known her a few weeks. Um, and there's also something in there with they're all Italian and she's Polish. And... I think a large part of what the movie is about is even within family, what are the bonds or connections that actually count when you need them to? Stemming off of that, um, throughout by the time I get, you get to the end of the film, I see the closest, um, I guess, similar character. The, the most similar character to Charlie is actually um, uh, Dominic. Hmm. In the end, Mayrose's father. Yes, Mayrose's father father. and Don Corrado's son. Dominic is seemingly at the beginning of the film, and for most of the film, he's the day-to-day leader of the family of the Princey family. Don Corrado is obviously the he's the one who has the final say in everything. But Dominic is the one who's kind of the face of the organization at this point, and Don Corrado is going to have Charlie replace him by the end of the movie. That's the Mm -hmm. the whole idea. In both cases, you you get the sense that these are two guys who are never the smartest people in the room. They've always the smartest people are those they surround themselves with. Um, they're always kind of one or two steps behind everyone else in the movie. Part of it's naivete, that that's particularly true on Charlie's part, um, because to your point, TJ, you not Kathleen Turner's character here, Irene. You get the sense that she's playing a game. I think early on Mm -hmm. a game that charlie doesn't seem to always be aware that he's in on right he's a player yeah the first the first indication he really gets of that is after he gets the marxie heller job and he goes to kill marxie heller (laughs) um for the 300 he's supposed to collect the seven hundred and twenty thousand that wasn't paid back and then as he's waiting there mrs heller comes home and what mrs heller is irene Oh, I thought you'd be more shocked. Uh, <laughs> I've seen the movie. I'm not gonna, I know what happened. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and she immediately, you can see her kind of stumble through things because she does the honey, I'm home bit, but then tries to go along with, well, I came home to divorce him. And he says, that doesn't sound like you were ready to divorce him. So she doesn't know where the money is. She gives him just half of it and says, why don't you just kill me and get it over with? And I, again, I love his line. I can't. I can't change the way I feel about you. If it were anybody else, I'd blow you away. <laughs> um, yeah, and he says this, like, really hamily delivered yes. as he, like, sits mm-hmm. sits down in the bed and, like, turns away from her dramatically. And, like, mm-hmm. again, I, I just wasn't wasn't on the wavelength of the performance or the tone there. Okay. Also, also <laughs> suggesting he's not a very good hitman. First of all, first of all, he knocks Marxie off without finding out where the the satchel is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I understand he's waiting for Marxie's wife to show up, so there's another person, but he doesn't really do any investigation regarding where this money's at, and Mayrose figures it all out like in a day. So yeah. later on, um, and yeah. 
And then, yeah, he's sitting in the room with her. He turns his back on her. You're a hitman. You were sent to kill this lady. You think that there's something fishy about all of this? You don't ever turn your back on someone. But he delivers that hammy yeah. line and stares out the window. And Well, he doesn't yet know that she's a hitman herself or hit woman herself. Yes, because she's got um, the soap opera tears. Well, mm-hmm. he doesn't. Well, he, he learns about eight minutes later that well he learns in the first act that there was a hit performed by the Preetzi family someone they they hired someone to perform a hit during the wedding that happens in the opening scene on sal netterbino sure and <laughs> a few minutes after this scene he learns that irene is the contractor they brought in yeah um and so i guess I, i've already i've already made this note and i'm gonna keep making this note but like it takes so long to get here you know like Learning that Irene is also a hitman still kind of feels like setup to me, and mm. therefore it kind of feels like act one. And that comes minute 46. 46. Mm-hmm. 46 is when he learns that she's also a hitman and performed the job at the wedding. Um, again, 35 minutes before we learn that he's a hitman, 46 minutes before we learn that she's also in that line of work. Just And then minute 52 is when Charlie says the line, I don't know whether to marry her or whack her. Yeah. Like, do I love her? I do know. I ice her? <laughs> that just how how did it take us this long to get there? Yeah. I guess is is my question. And like, was the fifty two minute build up to this worth it? I I don't know. It, for for what the movie ultimately is, it just seems like it was really taking its time. I, I, I did notice a lot of people on Letterboxd complaining about how slow the movie is, and it sounds yeah. like you're you're reiterating some of those complaints. Um, a bit. Again, like it, it doesn't help that I kind of had a a flawed view of what the movie ultimately would be, given mm-hmm. how it's kind of discussed and and again, market is the wrong word, but the the tagline and that kind of thing. Um, but even even what the movie ends up being, like it, even without those expectations, I think it still does take an awful long time mm-hmm. to get places. Particularly because, given the time, given the tagline, people going to this movie already know to suspect what's really the what's going to happen in this movie. It takes a really long time for the movie to confirm that she is, in fact, smarter than she appears and more involved than she appears during and the first half it's hour. Just, the the real like crux of the plot starts like after the hour mark. Like at, we're we're more than an hour in by the time. Um, let's see. At at minute sixty four is when they have this kidnapping plot, and Irene pitches herself as someone who could take place in this kidnapping plot. And like mm-hmm. Charlie feels a little emasculated because his wife is stepping in to yeah. like call some shots. That, that's minute 64. And then like the, basically the next scene is minute 66 where May Rose um, lies to her father about something that happened between her and Charlie in order for yeah. uh, her father to like basically open a contract on Charlie. So like, uh, you know, May Rose's machinations that ultimately work. Um, that's, minute 66 uh the kidnapping plots minute 64 and like everything before that is just basically setting up chess pieces of like charlie and irene and may rose and like i don't know if it needed to take an hour personally you know i'm just kind of like i don't even know what what i I watched it yesterday and i don't really know what happens in the first hour besides (laughs) there's a wedding and they fly back and forth between the coast (laughs) a lot that's that's kind of it and uh he goes to his dad kind of for girl advice and then calls may rose over to talk to her about a girl and she right away is like let's do it let's do it right now on the oriental rug which is, again i think it's a great detail in the line since she decorated his apartment um but then uh the next time he's with he's with irene she quotes her late husband 
And there's an, I, I think another great line here where he shows that he's getting jealous and he yeah. goes, if Moxie hell is so fucking smart, how come he's so fucking dead? Yeah. <laughs> Which I thought was great. Um, that's okay. So then the plot comes in that Josh was just alluding to of kidnapping Falargi, who is the bank manager that was like scraping some money off the top. And the, there's another mention in there of the main theme about what's sort of sweetest to a man. Is it his life or his money? Um, so she steps in, Irene does, and comes up with the plan for them and actually says, I'll be the woman that does it, which is that they're, they're going to <laughs> confront the men, throw a baby at them to catch them off guard and then shoot them. And he's even like, well, where are we going to get a baby? And she's like, we'll use a doll, um, <laughs> which is great. Uh, I can get you a baby, dude. I can get you a baby by three o'clock this afternoon yeah. with nail polish. And the dad, the dad is taken with her. He, you know, that's that's a masterpiece. Throwing a baby, that's yeah. a masterpiece. John, John <laughs> Randolph really likes the idea, which is perfect because at the end of the film, he doesn't. Mm-hmm. He specifically criticizes him for hiring his wife. Yeah, yeah. Um, so then we get that's when we get the scene with May Rose where we start to realize what she's doing and she's pulling the strings where she yes. kills her dad. I would uh, real quick. She's not pulling the strings though. So this is the, uh, something I do have a problem with the movie. None of the plans really pan out and there's a whole lot of things happening that ultimately don't have an effect on what ultimately happens. Um, May Rose uh-huh. is trying desperately to either get Irene out of the picture or Charlie out of the picture. It doesn't really seem to matter. Um, because she ends up, well, spoiler alert, she ends up with Charlie in the end of the film. Mm-hmm. She gets him. But she, first, she she was trying to anger her father so that he'd take out a contract. So at some point, she was okay with Charlie getting knocked off. Uh, she wants Irene out of the picture. And ultimately, when she goes to Don... Does she want Irene out of the picture? I think so. Yeah. She, she, what would indicate that? Well, at the end of the film, she's happy with how everything resolved itself. Well, sure, she's happy with the outcome that Charlie's hers now, but I don't know if she ever is like actively trying to ice Irene or anything well, like that. Well, she goes to Don Corrado when she thinks she's got the information that's going to sway Don Corrado into taking action against Irene because Irene is not Sicilian. She's not Italian. She's Polish. She's an outsider. Mm-hmm. And Don Corrado is the one that pushes back and decides to give Irene a chance to fix everything. And and I think the key is that May Rose is also an outsider. When she lies to her dad about Charlie raping her like three or four times, he says, how can you say such things to your father? Where is your honor? And she says, are you kidding? I have no honor anymore. Yeah, this is the titular Pritzi's honor conversation <laughs> here. Yes, it is. Yeah. Um, I, I, to your point, Ken, I guess that May Rose doesn't necessarily have like a specific plot she wants to execute. I think at this point she's kind of stirring shit up mm. and like creating chaos. Like... Again, she lies to her father about, you know, she says that Charlie raped her when in reality she's the one who says, let's do it right here on the Oriental rug. Um, And so she knows that her father will take action against Charlie, but like she doesn't seem to really care who comes out on top in this conflict, whether it's Charlie who gets iced or if it's her father who gets, you know, a wedge between him and the rest of the family, which is ultimately what happens. Right. And like, I think to me, Rose's, you know, aims, she gets the best of both worlds because Irene's now out of the picture. Charlie's coming crawling back to her and mm-hmm. her father also kind of is, is 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 forced out of the family a bit um but i don't think she like i think she's happy with that outcome but i don't think she like had like she's not a puppeteer here she's kind of just like starting shit well, to see, to see what happens. well that's what i was pushing back the idea she's pulling the strings because ultimately i don't think she, i don't think may rose does anything to affect the ultimate outcome of the film because ultimately what does irene in is the incident tj was talking about the job they're supposed to do 
that results in the death of a bystander that turns out to be the wife of a police captain. <laughs> Which, again, here's, here's a note about the tone, is we have that pretty heavy scene with Mae Rose and her father. Right. Where she kills him and she's talking about rape and it's pr- it's a pretty raw scene. Uh, well, small... She doesn't kill him, but she... Incapacitates. Uh, what are you talking about? May Rose with her dad. Also, side note... She incapacitates her dad. In that scene, she, yeah. She poisons him. No, he, she doesn't poison him. He's got He's heart like... conditions and instead of pouring a glass of water, she pours in a full glass of grappa. What man doesn't taste the difference between still water and grappa? Which is well, Italian. He eventually, but he gets like three good gulps. See, I was thinking she poisoned that quiche or something. Uh, I don't know. Well, he, he he's in future scenes, so it's not like he dies or anything like yeah, that. Yeah, true, like, true. Um, she is a shit stirrer, though. She is. And I, I want to say real quick, the end of this scene, as he like excuses himself to go throw up, presumably, uh, Angelica Houston crosses her arms and her eyebrow does a little twitch. And I'm like, oh my God, it's Morticia Adams right there. Oh, yes. nice. You know, it's, it's such a Morticia Adams moment. On that note, I, so I don't, I don't know if I love her performance mainly because I I get, don't think it has much of an effect on the film and it's subtle. I like it. I like Angelica Houston specifically, but there are so many other roles that I love her in more than I like this movie. Mm. And in a year where you've got Margaret Avery or Oprah in the color purple, it's weird to me that this is the performance that wins the Oscar for supporting actress. We can talk more about little it. Little nepotiz. There's a, you know, there's just, I feel like this whole performance is look, she's the daughter of the director and her, she's the, and the, and the girlfriend of the star, yes, the yeah. long-term director yeah. of the lead, long-term partner of the lead. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, a note real quickly on the, the scene where they kill somebody and Irene's undoing. I thought that was hilarious. Um, that they they throw the baby and it kind of works and then the police chief's wife we don't know it yet she comes out she just goes oh i must have picked the wrong floor and then takes a a bullet right in the yeah yeah the whole scene is absurdist because actually on that note when she talked the baby the baby doesn't fully work she has to drop drop down to shoot because he doesn't reach for the baby and and she says later, what kind of creep wouldn't catch a baby? If he were right. real, he would be crippled for life. <laughs> so after she just murders two people and she's upset that the one guy that gets killed, like he wouldn't catch a baby. What's the what's matter this with guy's him? Yeah, 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 it's pretty great. Um, quick note with the, the scene before where May Rose is putting the makeup on and then you hear her called to dinner by her father. That's John Houston off screen, which mm. is kind of fun. Um, OK, so then, yeah, we're in trouble. And she goes to Irene gets contracted to hit to put a hit on Charlie. Um, well, May- Dominic Mayrose's father Dominic hires Irene to kill Charlie, not knowing that Irene and Charlie are married. So that's like that's an awfully big coincidence in my mind. Um, <laughs> of all the of all the hit men you could hire, of all the hit people and all the hit world, <laughs> um, and and then Mayrose goes and talks to the Don. And he says to her, I wish you had a son. You are a true Pritzi. Want a cookie? (laughs) 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 Which is awesome. And right at the end where she's still trying to push about the honor and loyalty, he just asks her, have another cookie. (laughs) And here's a part I love about her performance. If you could say, fuck you, with the biting of a cookie, she does it there. Mm. Yeah. I don't know. I just really liked that. There's a lot of plot machinations here about they're moving Dominic out to Vegas. They were going to make Charlie boss. Um, Charlie thinks this is all sounding fishy because Dominic should have been the one that tells him, not the Don. And also his dad doesn't seem to know. So he's like, something's going on here. 
So Irene suggests that she, she reveals that she was hired to clip him and suggests that they run away to Hong Kong. And Charlie's hung up on Hong Kong, <laughs> um, uh, where apparently she knows a guy that can get them new faces and new fingerprints. Um, I, I lost some of the plot in the latter part of this movie, and I, I was wondering if you guys had a similar experience where kind of the details of what's going on and who's planning and backstabbing was a little bit unclear. Or I really struggle with plot details a lot of the time. I got it all, but it is convoluted. It's unnecessarily convoluted. Part mm-hmm. of it... Yeah. Be- it's it's wild because to Josh's point, this movie it takes its time, but it's 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 really digging in as far as mm-hmm. the everything that's trying to go on, all the people who are plotting who's with who. And- yeah, I think I think the first hour really really takes its time, then the last like twenty minutes rushes mm. really badly. And so when I say the movie is kind of weirdly plotted, that's kind of what I'm talking about mm-hmm. to the mm-hmm. point that the last like it's certainly not incoherent, but I also kind of like. I didn't care enough <laughs> to like try to figure out exactly who was doing what and why. Okay. And last week, and that that's my fault. I mean, I wasn't no, the most engaging no. viewer here, but um, yeah. I mean, I agree that I also kind of lost the plot a bit. If you mm-hmm. cut through everything, Irene is Irene is a hitman, right? She's also been doing. She's been undertaking some criminal activity with her first husband, Marcy. When we meet her, Charlie's apparently a hitman and a prominent officer within the Pritzy family. The Pritzies have a plan to go after in sh- the the uh, the bank that Farlaji is head of. The idea is they're going to get Farlaji out. They own a percentage of the bank. They want to take over all of it. They're going to get him out. And the way to do that is they've decided they're going to kidnap him. He'll get the insurance money or the ransom money from the insurance. Yeah, they'll get the insurance money that will pay off the ransom. Um, they'll get a piece of that, but they'll be able to take advantage of his absence and be able to take advantage of him being forced out. So they stand to make $70 million right. or so. The family does. And on the side of this, because the attempted kidnapping involves Charlie and Irene going ahead with the kidnapping, the wife of a police a police captain ends up getting killed, and that mm-hmm. puts pressure on the criminal underworld in yeah. New York. And so all of this, at the end of the day... Irene's downfall is because she shot the wrong person and the Pritzies are ready to turn her. They, they got, they got a, they need a scapegoat and she's the one who actually, a second man to give the cops. She's yeah. the one who actually yeah. shot her to be fair. She's the one who murdered the, the, the bystander. Um, and that's it. That's where we end up. And Charlie has to make a decision. Is he with the family or is he with Irene? Yeah. And, and that's, that's the climax of the movie. But I also think it's kind of one of the better things that are, that's the movie does is they make him make the decision of a lot of the movie is like it's not business it's family which is again comes up in the godfather but the choice he has to make at the end actually is family or family and what's interesting is he says and seeming to make that decision he's like i don't want to grow old with nothing but money and bodyguards and family is the only place i can be i know that well what's interesting about that line which his dad takes as oh good you chose us which we find out later he does that could that same rationale could be applied for no i'm not going to kill my wife yeah and I, I guess structurally speaking, I was, I was kind of like raising my eyebrows at some of the structural stuff in the first half. Mm-hmm. The the last bit in terms of like what I'm expecting kind of works like uh, about half an hour left. Mm-hmm. What we would probably call our break into three. That's when uh, Irene tells Charlie that Dominic put the hit on him, hired her to kill him. Uh, that's when she admits the fact that she took the $720,000 that she lied about in the first act. And that's also when she pitches Sam, hey, let's run away to Hong Kong. Yeah. It's so like. That does set up the half hour, the last half hour of the movie kind of nicely, where mm-hmm. like Dominic or you know Charlie knows that the family put a hit on him, 
Um, and then with the final 15 minutes is when the Don tells Charlie he has to kill Irene. Mm-hmm. So, like, these structural points work for me. And then the last five minutes is, like, them <laughs> trying to kill each other, I guess, for five minutes. Yeah, so they, they meet together at the end. And what I think is nice about this is it comes back to the screwball farcical nature of this where they they're both playing it's very screwball yes yeah they're both playing happy couple at the end mm-hmm. you know running into each other's arms where they both know something that they think the other one doesn't yeah but they don't know that the other one knows that thing if that makes any sense which um, is her reaction she's not surprised at all when he comes through the home and announces it, the the cal their, his, their california house when he mm-hmm. comes through the door even though he had the meeting in New York, she was in New York, he calls her and cannot hide through his voice that that he's, you know, everything's going to be fine. Yeah, like, yeah. Everything's uh-huh. okay. It's worked out. Again, really bad at his yeah. job. <laughs> and she takes off for California, leaves him a note, like, I'm going to be gone for a few days. In reality, she's planning to, she's planning to head off oh, to yeah, yeah. Southeast Asia or wherever she's going. Yeah. And he decides to, oh, well shoot i'm gonna have to follow her so he flies out there side note i wish we could all just jump on aircraft as often as they did in 1985 and fly back and forth across the country and smoke on the plane yes and he just Uh. ends up he ends up there he walks in she's not surprised oh honey you're here yeah meanwhile what is the purpose of having wasted the last 10 minutes of them going across country then (laughs) all for this setup that could have easily done been done at home in new york yeah, so she she's getting ready. She has a gun in her makeup case and says, Marxy, I should have listened to you, right? That knowing, acknowledging there that he's probably going to kill me. So she's ready with the gun. They're about to make whoopsie doopsie, <laughs> uh, get a little hanky panky on there. And she comes out, guns ablazing, misses, hits the pillow, and he throws a knife through her neck which is a gnarly gnarly thing i was quite caught off guard by it's a shocking Um, shot yeah josh you're 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 shaking your head here were you jaw dropped um i spoiled the shot for myself what uh i was maybe halfway through the movie and i was taking a a break to get more popcorn or something Mm. and i was doing my due diligence researching josh's populist corner and uh i just searched the word the words prison's honor on twitter just to see what if anything people said about it and i did see this screenshot of a neck in kathleen or a a knife in kathleen turner's neck Mm. i'm like oh okay i guess that's where this is going yeah i did not know he was gonna throw it at her though like a goddamn bugs bunny cartoon (laughs) so that part was a surprise but but, uh, getting a knife in the neck was not a surprise which is yeah yeah. first of all the fact that he he literally brings a knife to a gunfight but he wins Uh, in the end and i I kind of All wonder. All he had to do is move to the side yes. for her to shoot the pillow. I guess yeah. she's supposed to be a great hit woman, like the best. She even calls herself the best, which is why Dominic hires her. And yet she can't hit a slightly overweight, slightly shuffling man laying down in a bed who just moves over a little bit. Yeah. Do we think is the only reason this ends the way it does because they can't have Nicholson die in the end of the movie? Because there's no reason why she doesn't get him. Well, okay, so that's really where I wanted to go to right at the end here. The end has, along with the rest of the movie, I think a very, very strange tone, because I think on paper it's tragic. We're, we're supposed to believe whether they're misguided or not, or whether they misunderstand or not, they are in love. And you you would expect, you would want him to take to make that choice and to leave the crime family. He makes the choice of, 
staying with the family and then killing his wife. And I feel like the way the last scene is done where he calls May Rose and is like, Irene had to go away for a while. She won't be back. And then you see May Rose's reaction. There's a swell of the music as well that the way it's presented is like, ah, everything is tidied up nice and good. We got that spider woman Irene out of the way. And I I don't know. I was left. It, it feels tragic, but it feels like a tragedy presented with kind of the tone the characters have anytime they see violence in the movie, which is just like, eh. Josh, what was your reaction to the ending? Uh, it was quick and abrupt. Uh-huh. <laughs> kind uh-huh. of like, to my point earlier, uh, they really rushed through the last 20 minutes or so. And I, I and again, for the third time, uh, my expectations for the movie were a little skewed based on what I read about it beforehand. So like, part of it was like, oh, finally, we got to the part where they're hired to kill each other. And then that lasts, I don't know, 30 seconds. 60 mm-hmm. seconds. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I did enjoy the ending ending on May Rose. I thought mm-hmm. that was good. Um, that kind of, again, kind of landed the plane for her character and kind of brought brought it all back to her. Um, again, like halfway through the movie, I was surprised she'd won a supporting actress Oscar because she was barely in it. But then like it kind of, I guess to Ken's point, it's not like she planned for all of this to go down this mm-hmm. way, but she did plan just to start some shit and she did start some shit and things worked out for her. Yeah. Um, in, in a way that I kind of found satisfying. So ending on her, I think, was a great note. But um, the Irene-Charlie stuff felt a little abrupt to me, I guess. Uh, Ken, your impression of the ending? As I was saying earlier, so much of this film seems rushed and to some degree unnecessary. There's, It's just all a convoluted, messy bit of absurdist comedy that really ends up right where the whole thing should have ended up earlier without all of the stuff in between. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the only thing really bringing it all together is the humor. I really like mm-hmm. William Hickey. I really like some of the, some of the individual scenes or moments, but I'm not sure it achieves what it's trying to do because mm-hmm. at the end of it, I'm just like, what was the purpose of all of this? Because the best thing you could say to Josh's point is, okay, May Rose successfully brought them all down to her level. If she's the black sheep, she has no honor. I would argue that they never had any honor because Don Corrado, from the very beginning, through all of this, he's only guided by the money and the investment, mm-hmm. despite mm-hmm. what they say about family. Yeah. I think that's I think that's a great point. And I think that's an important point of what the film's about is they use honor as like a smokescreen for actually doing whatever the hell they want. And frequently it's just watching out for one's own butt. The titular Pritzi's honor. Yes. Yes. Um, uh, Josh, you uh, I, I don't have a TJ's literature corner. I did find the novel for a dollar and 74 cents, a paperback version. Not gotten to crack it open yet, but I am very curious mm. to do so. And this film, like Out of Africa, has very little written about it, kind of scholarly, academically. When I went to, to search on the databases, there's really not much out there. But there's always stuff there for Josh's populist corner. Yeah, I kind of already alluded to the letterbox reviews. I just kind of wanted to I think that the top letterbox reviews are pretty illuminating in this case because the top review is a lukewarm three and a half star review. The second highest review is a one star. The third highest review is a four star rave. And then the fourth highest review is again, like a lukewarm three star. So like 
you're kind of getting it's the movie's a mixed bag and i think mm-hmm, that the mm-hmm. the top reviews in letterbox kind of reflect that and i just wanted to highlight a few portions from each of these so the top rated review on letterbox which is again three and a half stars um i'm quoting now much of houston's work sees his morally good but ethically dingy characters falling from a mediocre height Pritzy is just scummy morons failing downward Hmm. Um, it's, it's certainly a less grand, though perhaps more amusing of a trajectory to watch. Uh, but the real sauces holding the dish of Pritzy together are not the admittedly hilarious Nicholson and Turner, but rather Houston's own daughter, Angelica, who he directed to an Oscar in the part. So again, that's kind of like alluding to the fact that like, if you're on the wavelength of performances, you'll probably like the movie. And, uh, to recap what I said earlier, I kind of wasn't, so I mm-hmm. wasn't sure to make the movie. And then, uh, lastly in this top review on Letterboxd. Angelica Houston reaps the winnings as one as the one competent woman in a world full of bliss, blustering morons. The best part of Pritzy is watching her sew with such little effort needed. The idiots do all the work on her behalf. Hmm. So again, as we kind of talked about, Ken, she's kind of like stirring shit up to see what happens. <laughs> and what happens is she comes out on top. Um, the one star pan, which is the second highest review on Letterboxd, second highest rated review, I thought was apt it says quote it tries to be the godfather then it tries to be the french connection and then it tries to be an audrey hepburn like rom-com then it tries to be moonstruck but it tries to be all and then it tries to be all all of them at the same time i'm not sure i buy that i'm not sure this is ever trying to be the french connection by any means um and to the extent that it's trying to be the godfather it's trying to do comedic riff because as to ken's point the audience has seen the godfather Mm -hmm. um i definitely thought of moonstruck while watching this though for sure. Like, that was actually the, the closest about point of comparison. That was the closest point of comparison I was watching. Particularly Angelica Houston, I was getting, you know, shades of um, another Oscar-winning performance, Cher in Moonstruck. Um, I like Moonstruck more than this. Uh, would, would this have been better if Nicolas Cage played Charlie? <laughs> Honestly, yes. It okay. absolutely would have. I lost my I hand! I don't know what Jack Nicholson, Jack Nicholson is doing in this, and I often don't know what Nicolas Cage is doing in anything, but it, <laughs> it at least, you know, usually works for me. Supposedly, Jack Nicholson read the script and turned it down, and then they gave it back. He's like, this is too dark, which is odd. They gave it back to him and said, read it again, but think it's a comedy. And mm. he actually was sold on wanting to work with John Houston. Who he... Op- he acted opposite yeah, in Chinatown. Right, the future, Mister Gitz. Yes, the future. Uh, so for the four star uh, review on Letterbox, which is the highest rated pause review, quote sufficiently delivers enough amusement in its mixture of comedy and tension, along with a few subversive underlying themes. Um, its most noteworthy component derives from the screen chemistry between Jackson and Kathleen Turner. Although the award, uh, the award winning performance. Academy performance from Angelica Houston shouldn't go without mention. So again, it is praising the tone and the performances. Mm-hmm. That's why this reviewer liked the movie so much. Mm-hmm. And uh, lastly, the uh, another three-star lukewarm review that I think is probably the closest to my feelings. Quote, if you add together all the promising elements of Pritzy's Honor, a black comedy inflected mob drama from director John Houston, it sounds great, but the execution misses something and the result is less than the sum of its parts. I think that's pretty fair. Uh, that's that's kind of like how, where I'm at. Okay. But again, I, th- I think those four reviews in Letterboxd are illuminating about who might like this mm-hmm. and what works for people. And like, I, th- I feel like, you, you know, I'll say it for like a fifth time. I think that it kind of hinges on the tone and the performances. And um, I'm not sure I was on the wavelength. So I was kind of like, eh. Okay. Uh, Ken, final thoughts before boilerplate stuff? It's just, it's an odd 
odd little movie that it's weird it's a weird movie like i think to josh's point there are aspects of this film that i liked but on the whole i just don't think it works at least i don't think it achieves what i think houston probably wants it to do um kind of kind of like some of the characters in the movie i just don't think it gets there um it's pretty shaggy yeah it's a shaggy it is very shaggy yeah that's a good that's an apt description Mm -hmm. all right so how does this stack up to the long slate of best picture nominees that you've seen throughout all of recorded time i mean this this occurred to me i guess we just have like a general talk about this best picture nomination i was very surprised yes watching this i'm like really yeah this was nominated for best picture and i'm sure or you know i'm not sure but my assumption is that a lot of it is the fact that it stars jack nicholson and was directed by john houston and had either of those things not been the case this just is just such a not an oscar movie to me and like it's such a a weird choice <laughs> for to not only be nominated for best picture be nominated for eight oscars yeah um jack nicholson is the most nominated male performer in oscar history he has 13, uh, 12 nominations three wins um this is not an oscar caliber performance by any means he was nominated for best actor here and i have to believe that's just because his name's jack nicholson um yeah i'm 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 surprised that this is the kind of movie that we're discussing on this podcast that's, <laughs> i guess we'll say okay. I, yeah. i'm uh, i'm gonna second josh's opinion because mm. watching this movie i kept thinking to myself this is i feel like this is a movie a throwaway film that i i was just gonna watch at some point to fill my jack nicholson filmography quota or something like oh i haven't seen this nicholson movie i'll, I'll take a look at it or i haven't seen this john houston movie i'll take a look at it because it seems to be relying heavily on the reputation of the people involved based on their past performances and their past work and that might be carrying it all the way to the oscars otherwise i don't know how to explain that it's there I can't imagine that the voters are reading so much into the film, like, oh, it's it's a brilliant criticism of it just of seems so slight. Reagan's America. It's, it seems kind of slight to me. Yeah, you know, it's it's as not far as Oscar movies go. It reminds me a lot of the um, kind of screwball comedies the Coens do. It has a very like yeah. burn after reading intolerable cruelty which, sort of vibe which to it. The Coens have had their fair share of Oscar nominations and Oscar wins, but never for those kinds of movies. Mm. Their right. screwball comedies are always completely ignored by awards bodies. So then it's the next question seems to be answered already, but do you think it deserved its best picture nomination? No. I don't know what this is, but at the same time, though, I have not really enjoyed the other nominations for 1985, but there it is. Uh, we'll talk about this in the, in the recap episode, I guess. Wow. Yeah, we are, we okay. are I think, okay. 0 for 4 and so far. If <laughs> this got crazy. made today, would this be nominated for, for Best Picture today? I can't see it. I just can't well, see again, it. Well, again, as we've alluded, like this, this relied so heavily on the star power of those involved, both in front of and behind the camera. Mm-hmm. And, like, I don't know mm-hmm. if we, I don't know if this gets made today, because uh, we don't have Jack Nicholson's anymore. And I don't know who I don't know who the equivalent of John Houston is filmmaker wise would be today, who's uh who's seasoned and been nominated for thirteen Oscars in their career. And okay. Ken, you don't think so either? I don't see it. I don't. What do you think, TJ? I mean, you're. I asked the us, questions what you, here. What are, Josh. what are your answers to all these um, questions? No, I don't think it gets. I I don't think it gets nominated today. I also thought I I think I liked the movie more than you guys did. 
but it was maybe refreshingly very much not an Oscar movie. I was kind of surprised by that because it's, I, I think yeah. slight is a good adjective. I, I will say, especially after watching The Color Purple, Kiss of Spider-Woman, and Out of Africa, three very Oscar-y kinds of movies. I agree that it was a bit of a breath of, breath of mm-hmm. fresh air sure. in that respect. I just wish it, I wish, wish I liked it more. I will know? say this. I, I found it more entertaining than the previous three. And to that, to that, okay, I I did enjoy it more than I enjoyed uh, Out of Africa, The Color Purple, or Kiss of the Spider Woman. That said, it's it's just you know it, it's there, it's fine, it's a it's a quaint little you know dark comedy, but I it's don't there, understand all of the praise. <laughs> all right, well, I think that it's... wraps it up for Pritzi's honor. Here, next week we will conclude our groundbreaking series on the 1985 Best Picture nominees with Witness. Witness We're going to get Weir. Uh, Witness starring Harrison Ford, directed by Peter Weir. And it is mercifully short at, I think, an hour and 50 minutes. We've had some some running times here. Woo! We've dedicated so much of our lives to watch these 1985 movies so far. You know, if you like us or kind of having a hard time getting through some of these long running times. It could be worse. You could be stuck in line at an airport behind Robert Loja. R as in Robert Loja. O as in, oh my God, it's Robert Loja. B as in, boy, everybody loves Robert Loja. That's all from us. Um, You can find (laughs) us on TikTok. You can find us on Twitter. You can find us on TikTok at Serious Film People Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Serious Film PPL. Uh, you can email us, Serious Film People at Gmail. And Patreon. Patreon? I guess by the time this comes yeah. out, we'll have a Patreon. Uh, I don't know. Just Google us. Sure. You'll find us. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, hope you join us again next week for Witness. Let's get weird. <laughs> Take care. Signing off. Bye. Bye.